This is the Living Vertizano podcast brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on Matthew 22, 15 to 33, and we will be looking at Jesus' statement on paying the imperial tax to Caesar, as well as his response to the Sadducees' question on marriage at the resurrection. Together, we will be discussing stewardship and rooting our identities in Christ. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizano podcast, back with you uh, again this week to continue our journey through Matthew. Um, As a quick reminder, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 22, 1 to 14, um, so that was the the opening uh, parable of Matthew chapter 22. And in that, we discussed um, his parable of the wedding bank- banquet and, as a result, our responsibility in preparation for the kingdom of heaven and the wedding banquet that is coming. Uh, we are going to be continuing in Matthew 22, moving on into Matthew 22, verses 15 through 33, uh, where we're going to be uh, looking at um, this conversation that Jesus has with uh, two different groups about the imperial tax to Caesar and then another group uh, about marriage at the resurrection. Um, and I believe today we have Brittany reading for us. So Brittany, would you mind reading Matthew 22, verses 15 through 33? Sure. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who were there, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. But there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose life will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are an error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, but about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. All right. Thank you for that, Brittany. Um, Just as a quick reminder, 
again, putting it in its place, we're still in that time period where Jesus is in the temple, um, kind of in that week following the triumphal entry before his um, crucifixion, where he is doing a whole lot of, of teaching and responding to questions and uh, interacting with the crowds and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and uh, many others. And so we are just continuing to find ourselves in the midst of those exchanges that are taking place. Uh, and so with that, uh, let's just jump right in. What are we seeing here with this passage this week? So when I look at this, I, I see the Pharisees um, and their their whole goal is to trap him. Um, and in that, so the Pharisees um, are not do not think favorably upon the Roman leaders, um, whereas the Herodians more so do. Um, so when he's sending, when they're sending their disciples along with the Herodians, this is a lose-lose for whoever's asked this question. Um, if he says, pay the tax, then the, the Pharisees will be upset. If he, they say, don't pay the tax, the Herodians will be um, upset. So either way, there's not a good way, or so they thought, to um, approach this. And I think it's interesting when they're, when they're asking the question, they are, um, you know, embellishing, you know, you're a man of integrity and mm. you teach the way of God in accordance to the truth. And when I think of somebody who's going to be, to trap me, or, you know, we would, I would consider a snake, like a snake in the grass. Like, that's what I would expect. I would expect somebody to just, you know, pour on all the compliments and then gotcha. So right. that kind of seems what's going on here. So essentially, I mean, the, the first verse, it says the the Pharisees went out. So this is following the the parable of the wedding uh, banquet where they recognize Jesus essentially has identified them as the ones who are ignoring the invitation and so are unworthy of um, their, the present being present at this this feast. And so they're upset again. Seems like he's all... I shouldn't say he's always making them upset. They're always upset at his responses because they're not coming out on the side that they think they should be coming out on. And so they leave and they lay this plan to trap. And so this is their plan. Their their plan is to load the deck in their favor. They have this gotcha question that they're going to ask and they've made sure that the audience is uh, represents people from two different groups that are two different extremes about this question that, like you said, Brittany, there's, there's no way for Jesus to win this conversation, at least from their perspective, right? Their, their plans to trap him. At the end of Matthew 21, um, they, you know, that's where they were talking about, um, the cornerstone and, mm -hmm. um, about the vineyard and things like that. And, at the, the very last verse, it says they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. And it seems like this, this trap is to sway the view mm -hmm. of one of one of the, you know, of the crowd, either one way, you know, one group of the crowd or the other. Um, and just as a way to kind of gain some momentum of people looking at him in a different light as looking, being able to do something without having kind of this uproar in the crowd. Hmm. That's good. That's good. So rather than seeing it as just like this, like singular response to their 
frustration from just the last parable. It, it's part of a greater whole where they're they're recognizing, man, that the crowd isn't with us, and so we need to figure out a way to to get the crowd off balance out of his favor and maybe more into our our side of things. I feel like you can see the I don't know, almost irony in the situation that they've created and the words that they use, Brittany, like you were saying to butter Jesus up uh, for this because they've brought these people, these two diverse groups together intentionally to try to sway him one direction or another and make him feel stuck. But then they say, but you aren't swayed by others. So you're above that. So deal with this. And I don't know that I feel like there's so much irony in the situation they've set up. And yet the question that they're, I don't know, hoping to lock him into. It's, it's funny to me. And I don't think I realized it until you said that Natasha, it's funny to me how, bent out of shape the Pharisees are with the message that Jesus is saying when they come and make a a claim like that, like saying that you aren't swayed by others. So they see in him that he simply speaks the truth. It doesn't matter what his audience is. He's not going to change his messaging based on the audience so that he can get a better response from people. He is just going to tell the truth. And even knowing that the Pharisees keep coming to try to get something different out of him because the truth that they are hearing is not comfortable for them. Well, not, I think that's the thing is they're so, they are so clinging to the power of what, what this infrastructure that is like the Jewish temple has made for them. And they're so dependent on it for their identity that they'd rather reject something they see to even possibly be of God than to lose their status and lose their position and lose all these things that they've worked so hard. I mean, their whole lives they've given to this. They deserve it. You know, they've put in their time. So you said, you said two different things. I feel like that, you know, that the, the Pharisees wanted to hold on to power but then also this idea that the Pharisees' identity was wrapped up in this. And I think there is an overlapping and intersecting that can exist there. But at the same time, maybe, I guess it's easy for me to look at it and say, yeah, and kind of have like my judgmental lenses on against them. But then if I think about it and realize that this is what they have been raised in and trained in and indoctrinated into, this is where their identity is rooted to hear the words of Jesus, to hear the challenging to this establishment. I mean, it is shaking them at their very core, the the foundation of who they are and to, to follow him completely destroys everything they even know about themselves. And that can be shaky a shaky place to be. That can be a scary place to be. And so I think, and not until you, again, were saying what you were saying, I think I've always looked at the Pharisees like, oh goodness, like, come on guys, like shame on you. You're just clinging to power. But I think there's also maybe this element where 
they're clinging to their very identity. Like it's not necessarily, it, it probably is a power struggle as well. But like, aside from just the power struggle, there's also just this like reality struggle for them. And, and I don't know that I actually noticed that until, and th- this may sound silly, but you know, we've been watching the show, the chosen and, um, I, I get that, you know, take it at entertainment value. Right. And, and even still it's, there is some very good entertainment and there's some very good like following of scripture in it, but there's this storyline that exists with Nicodemus throughout the entirety of really the first season. That's as far as we've gotten. We're barely starting season two. Um, but the storyline that exists and, and you actually see this, this tension with Nicodemus where, and some of the other, uh, Shimuel, Shimuel, Shmuel. I don't remember. I don't know how to say his name, but it's something like that. <laughs> so you see this tension with Nicodemus and one of his disciples, right? Where his disciple is really clinging to the law, and Nicodemus is struggling with who Jesus is and what Jesus is talking about. And and you see the struggle existing within Nicodemus. You you see Shimuel and the power struggle but you see Nicodemus in the identity struggle that's existing where he's not really necessarily in it, trying to clamor for power. He's trying to clamor for understanding. And as he begins to grasp more and more of Jesus, he begins to lose more and more of himself. And that is a scary situation for him. So when I think about how that can apply to us today, you know, Jesus is asking us to lay down our identity. I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the, sometimes the very thing that we think makes us who we are, whether it's our job, whether it's, um, you know, our, a hobby that we have or something that we're known for, you know, he's asking us to lay that stuff down and there can be that struggle between, yeah, but that is just who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, whether, you know, whether it's a, you know, a bad attitude sometimes mm-hmm. and it's easy to say, yeah, um, you know, I, I lashed out at my husband, but that's, he just knows like, that's just how I am. And instead of owning that and saying, okay, Jesus, you've called me to be kind and to love others as I love myself. Me lashing out at my husband doesn't accomplish that goal. Um, and I, I think that can be brought to today's time, you know, just that power struggle of, you know, who I think I am and who Jesus knows that I am. Right. Well, I mean, in the context of our time, identity is so important to people. They want to have a label associated with them. And like, it's easy for us to sit and say, well, the only identity you need to be known by is your identity in Christ. But the problem is, is just like for them, there's a real struggle, especially in our American context. We we have this like national, like Christendom that we struggle with. We really do. Like, it's my right. I think back to COVID and I heard so many, it's my rights when it was, I want to do this or this or this. And we kind of forgot about the other. So like, if we're not careful, we allow our identity to become more important than the one who has given us a new identity. And it's kind of a slippery slope where it's so important that we do that, live that horizontal life, because if we're not careful, it becomes the identity of me and not the identity of we, the body of Christ. 
I think too, a lot of, so I've been, I guess maybe I'm surrounded by this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just, I'm getting older, so I'm starting to pay more attention to it. But I feel like in my life, I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are approaching retirement age. Um, like my parents are getting there. I don't know if they're ever, ever retire. Um, but like I, I see people, um, like your parents are almost there. I, I, you know, I, so I see people approaching this point in life and for most of the people that I know of their career really has become a key part of their identity exactly. and not necessarily in a bad way. Right but it can also be in a bad way. And I, I see them, some of them starting to struggle with this internal crisis of who am I after I'm done with blank? Who am I after I retire from teaching? Who am I after I'm no longer a nurse? Who am I after I'm done with engineering? Who am I after I'm no longer working in the dental office? Who am I once my kids have left the house? What is my identity? And I, I think the problem is our primary identity has been allowed to be something that is not of God. And not or that it's not Jesus, period. Like that it's not Jesus. Right. And so I think I think this kind of this moment maybe exposes it because I see, um, I don't know if I can I can talk about this, but I I see this this in my dad. I see this joy in him where he finds purpose, not necessarily even, even doing his work, but he finds joy and purpose in going to his job every day because he hopes and expects that he's going to get an opportunity to love people for Jesus while he goes to work. Now that's somebody who can stop what they're doing tomorrow. And as long as they still have the opportunity to find people and impact them for Jesus, I don't think your purpose goes away. I think you carry that. And so I think that's the mission that Jesus wants to give every single one of us. He wants us to call a, he wants to call us to that purpose and identity before we get ourselves so believing a lie that we're nothing more than what we do or what we produce or who other people call us. Um, but he has something so much bigger and so much higher for us. And so I don't know. I just I want people to hear that there's so much more that Jesus has. Well, and so I think if we look back at the beginning of chapter 22, um, Jesus started by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and talking about the king and the king's role and about the obedience and obedience in servants or, or those under the king and what that brought. And in a, in a way, I kind of think Jesus is doing that here, um, that he is laying before them the opportunity to be obedient, obedient to the land and obedient to him. Um, and when we are obedient to Jesus, it does really give us, a, we do find that identity in Christ that, that we miss in so many other things. And like, sometimes I think we overcomplicate what this relationship is supposed to be, but we, we've had this conversation before. It's like, listen, be obedient and repeat. Like if that's our life, like there's great purpose in that. Like you were talking about your dad finding joy by just going and loving people. He listened to Jesus. Jesus was very clear to him and what he needed to do. And he's just trying to repeat that every day. That's the goal, right? Like that should be our hope, our, our dream, like to listen to Jesus 
uh, obey what he asks and repeat. I, I mean, I, I think it's an easy way to find our identity in Jesus. Like, I don't think it has to be super complicated. And sometimes we really do that. And I think that's how we can get lost in this like identity struggle is because we make it like the do's and the don'ts and all these things that we try to make this relationship out to be when Jesus just simply wanted people who would listen. So jumping in back into this story, like Jesus sees through their identities that they have assumed and exposes the truth of them and, and calls them out. Knowing their evil intent, he says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Like Jesus sees right through the the facades that they have up, the uh, identities that they have built for themselves. And he sees them for who they are. He sees their heart. And, and you know, this is true for each and every single one of us as, as Brittany kind of called out at the very beginning of this, when she was talking about like an interaction, you know, between you, each of you and how, you know, she could say, well, that's just my response to him. Like he knows me and that's just how I am. But Jesus has called her to more. Like he sees through this. That's just the way I am attitude in both the, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians and us today. And he calls us to something more to, to a life of obedience, to, a life of, uh, in a way, stewardship. And, and if we move forward in this, um, this story of the imperial tax, you know, something that, that really stood out to me as I read it was this existence of, of, of two different possibilities. Um, Jesus says, you know, whose inscription is on it? Well, um, it's, it's Caesar's. And he said, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when I read that, I thought to myself, like there, Jesus is only presenting two possibilities. Like everything is either God's or everything, everything is either God's or it's Caesar's like that, that coin is Caesar's. So give it to Caesar and make sure you give God's what's God's. And even the stuff that Caesar's is God's. And so when I read this passage, I don't even know that it was necessarily in Tended to be there, but I feel like Jesus, for some reason, has continued to bring up this idea of stewardship in different passages that that He's been leading me through, and not just necessarily stewardship of money, but stewardship of life, like whole life stewardship. And I think Jesus might be having that a similar conversation again, where Jesus has invited them then and even us now into a life of stewardship, a life that is lived in recognition that what I have is actually not mine. It is his, and he has simply entrusted me with it. I, I mean, that's kind of the the position that he was operating from as he was talking with um, the, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The reality is even the stuff that's being given to Caesar is God's. Uh, he didn't have to say that, but everybody knows that. And so like Jesus is just opening the door for um, the recognition and uh, realization that we are invited into a life of stewardship and, and we need to live that way, recognizing that it's not mine, uh, my money, my time, my talent, my um, whatever it, it's his. And um 
I need to be a good steward of it. I need to take care of it. I need to uh, invest in it and allow allow it to be used as he would allow it to be used in a way that would bring honor and glory to him. And so is eliminated any identity crisis that we have. Absolutely. Wow. Stewardship and identity coming together right there. And they were astonished with his answer. And so like this, what started out as a gotcha question where they had stacked the deck with, well, stacked the crowd with people that were going to explode and, and he was going to sway the crowd in his direction or out of, they were going to sway the crowd out of his direction falls apart. So Jesus might've made disciples of the Pharisees disciples. It just (laughs) might've happened. As we move into this second, I guess, questioning of Jesus this time by the Sadducees who are approaching him about conversations regarding what life will be like in the kingdom of heaven once it comes in full. Um, and specifically they're talking to him about, about marriage. And again, they're still wrapped up kind of in this identity conversation where they have this one woman and she's been wife to brother one and brother two and brother three. So what is her identity in heaven? Where, where is she going to fall in this? And so they come to Jesus again, missing this identity conversation. Um, and Jesus sets it straight. So I think this identity conversation is even more than just the identity that the Sadducees are ascribing to the woman as wife, but there's also this identity conversation that should exist just because this conversation is happening. Like the the identity of the Sadducees and and how, you know, they have aligned themselves so heavily with a certain belief, a certain doctrine, a certain understanding of how God works that they have now come to Jesus to ask him this question about the resurrection, thinking that their way is right. And so they ask this question in a way to try to, again, trap Jesus and expose him for being false, for not being truly from God. And Jesus, just like with the the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, like exposes it. And I I would say he actually exposes it even more directly because he just straight up says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Like you Sadducees have tried to place God in a box and you are trying to define how he operates and the way he's going to operate. And that's just not how it is. And, um, when when I think about that uh, in its application for us today, and I want to be very careful in this conversation because I recognize that it can sound, well, it people might say it sounds dangerous, but the Sadducees are well-trained people. They do study scripture. They have come up with their own understand. Like the, as a result of their study, they have come to the conclusion that you know there is no physical resurrection, and so they operate out of that. That their their doctrine, their their theology operates out of that understanding that they have pulled from studying scripture. And Jesus says, "You're wrong." 
and, and, and addresses this identity that they have assumed as a result of their theology that they have assumed. And I think that as we hear this today, we as a people who are earnestly trying to follow after Jesus, we need to be willing to hold our doctrine and theology with open hands before Jesus to allow him to shape and guide what we believe to be true about him and about how he has called us to live in this life. And I, I, I say I want to be careful in how I say this because I recognize that what I just said does sound crazy. I am not saying we need to hold our theology and our doctrine with open hands before man to allow you know, anybody just to define what truth is. But genuinely, as we are living this vertizontal life that we talk about living where we are listening for Jesus and, and we are not moving unless he says move or we are not staying unless he says stay, like where we are in communion with him, we have got to be willing to stand with, with open hands before him and say, all right, Jesus, this is what I'm understanding. Is this what I should be understanding or do you need to, do you need to call out error in, in what I'm saying or what I'm thinking or how I'm operating? He's a different kind of king calling people to a different kind of kingdom to find an identity that he's defined and live in a manner where it's all laid before him to help shape and mold what true is, not what's true by our own circumstance or our own life, but just like we've seen in these two passages. Or our own denomination. Or our own denomination. Just like we've seen in these two passages, Jesus is wanting to help them see beyond what they've grown accustomed to. And so he's a, he is. He's a different kind of king in a different kind of kingdom, calling people to look different, to live different, and just really to be different, to be peculiar. And, and I know that it's, it, it must have been as crazy to them as sometimes it feels to us. And I, I think to, to assume that we've arrived, to assume that we have God figured out and to assume that we have Jesus all figured out, we're probably an heir right. if that's the case. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think, you know, I, I made the comment just moments ago where I say, or denomination. The truth is, I think the stewardship conversation comes forward into this passage as well, or this conversation specifically. As Nazarenes, that is that is the denomination that we are a part of. As Nazarenes, to actually be good stewards of what God has continued to reveal to us means that we stand before him with what we understand that he has given us. We still stand before him with, with those understandings and say, all right, Jesus, like, are we still getting this? Like, is this, is this continuing to play out as, as you are calling us to walk in this life of holiness and this life of, of being set apart for you and for your work? 
Like, is this, is this what it looks like? Like this, this idea of having our identity rooted in him rather than our identity rooted in a structure of a church. Like this is what Jesus has called us to Christ and Christ alone. And so this week, as difficult as it might sound, this was actually the conversation that we had um, on Sunday morning in our church was, you know, as we walk through the week, perhaps Jesus is inviting us into, as we are listening to him through this passage and what he is revealing to us, perhaps Jesus is inviting us into a vulnerable moment with him where we stand before him with our hands open and we say, all right, Jesus, you know, this is what I've believed about you. This is what I've understood about you. This is how I see you. And we just say, is this, is this what it ought to be? Or do you need to correct something in me so that I can better reveal your glory in the world today. Be sure to follow the Living Bertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.